let's turn to First uh, Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two. All right. <coughs> I'm starting at verse number. Well, okay. So there's. We can read 1 through 10, but I'm just going to skip to the, the parts that kind of relevant, specifically relevant to our um, All right. So Second uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 5, and you are living stones that God is building into a spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests through the mediation of Jesus Christ. You offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. As the scriptures say, I'm placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem for a great honor, and anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. All right. Uh, verse number nine, but you are not like that for you are a chosen people and you are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others of the goodness of God for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. So, uh, this passage in First Peter, we're talking about uh, the priesthoods in the Bible. What is a priesthood? How does it? How is it relevant to the modern day church? Um, how does God want us to? Ha- like, what is a priest, and and how does that play into the roles of the church? Now, many religions have established priesthoods and priestly orders. Uh, to serve in their particular rituals. I don't know if you still have that that PowerPoint presentation from last week. Um, you can look in Slack, Leah. It's there. And if not, it's in the downloads. You can probably find it. And then just uh, throw up some of those pictures. They're just pictures to show that priests are in almost every religion. Um, you know, there's the, the Pope the priests within the Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, um, the Episcopal Church. There's, uh, you know, different orders within each one, and they, they all have their uh, variety of services and, and um, rules and ways of how they operate. Um, and priests are not unique to Christian religions. Um, if you look in the Hindu faith, there are priests, and they look different, and they have uh, different roles, but they have similar connecting points um, that 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 serve their particular their religion, and they they often priests often service people in their religion to serve as a guide. They serve as a um, someone who performs rituals or make sacrifices or, 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 or does things like that. Um, when you look at the, the official definition of the word priest in the, the dictionary, you'll find something similar to this. A person whose office it is to perform religious rites and especially to make a sacrificial offering. 
Christians use a person ordained to the sacerdotal or pastoral office, a member of the clergy, minister, in hierarchical churches, a member of the clergy or the order, uh, next below that of a bishop authorized to carry out the Christian ministry, and it's a minister of any religion. And uh, as, as I said, different priests have different orders, thank you, and, and they have uh, particular clothes that they wear to signify. Uh, many of them have their, their own specific lifestyles that they live by and uh, orders that they follow. And so this is the, the Pope. You go to the next one. This is, I think, the more recent Pope. Uh, this is a Catholic priest, um, so you might recognize some of the garbs are similar. Um, next, these would be Anglican priests. So some similarities in robe, in, in dress, uh, and then some differences as well. Um, this is a Hindu priest, so very different from the Catholic, the Anglican, Christian-style priests. Next, this, these are um, Buddhist, Buddhist priests. They call them monks. Um, this is a imam, a Muslim imam. So this, and the word imam is translated into priest from, from Arabic to English. So same idea. Uh, in the Old Testament, we find that God established a priesthood within the scriptures. Um, and so uh, you'll see here that these are the priests of the Old Testament. In fact, the Catholic priests pull a lot of their garb styles from the priesthood of, of, of Israel. And obviously, it's not the same. It's different. It's uh, perhaps fancied a little bit or uh, stylistically different. But the, the ideas of a priest wearing a robe was carried over into the Catholic faith and vice versa. Many Protestant religions that came out of the Catholic Church carried along some of those traditions to this day. Um, now, when we talk about a biblical priesthood, because at least as far as uh, Reformed Christianity goes, not that we're Reformed Christians, but um, Christianities began, Christianity began to reform in about 1500 um, with Martin Luther, with John Huss, um, with a bunch of different guys, um, who, who began to look at into the Bible again and say, hey, some of these things that we're doing in the church, the Roman Catholic Church at the time, are not scriptural. They don't line up with the Bible. They're, they're extra-biblical traditions that are being added to the scripture, and they don't coincide with, with the writings of the Word of God. So they, they said, let's go back to the Bible. And so this is our, this is our heritage as as Pentecostals even, we've taken it to the extreme to just say, whatever the Bible says and teaches, that's it. I think it was Martin Luther who said, solo scriptura, which means only the, only the Bible, only scripture. No, no church fathers, no interpretations, no Plato, no Aristotle, no Greek influence. We're going to do scripture and Bible only. So, I wanted to look at the priesthoods of the Bible. And last week, this is a quick review to bring uh, many of you up to speed. We started with the first priesthood the Bible speaks about, and that's in the Old Testament. And 
maybe to your astonishment, it's not the priesthood found in the temple. It's one that precedes the priesthoods of the temple, and it's found in Genesis chapter uh, number, oh no, I lost my reference. I think it's nine. And uh, Abraham is, is coming out of, I'm sorry, Genesis 14. And you don't have to turn there. It's okay. I just, just for sake, for note writing. Um, Genesis 14, 18 through 20. You can read about a guy by the name of Melchizedek. Very big name, Melchizedek. And this story is very brief in the Old Testament, but it's extremely important. So the short form is Abraham went to rescue his nephew Lot from a, uh, a group of seven kings that had captured him and his family. And he wanted to rescue them from imprisonment. And so he went over there, fought a battle, won the battle, came back, and is now going through Jerusalem, back home. Um, at the time, it was called Salem. It wasn't Jerusalem. It was just Salem. And the king of Salem comes out to meet Abraham with bread and wine and pronounces a blessing over him. Now, the Bible tells us that Melchizedek was the king of Salem, and he was also the priest of Salem, and he was the priest, the Bible says, of the Most High God. So the Scripture's telling us, and, and by the way, Abraham was not the only person to worship the one true and living God. I mean, if you look at Scripture, you'll read people like Noah, who found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah had no Scripture. Noah had no uh, Bible to speak of, but there was oral traditions that were passed on from generation to generation of how to worship God that were passed on from Adam and Eve. And so um, Melchizedek had, to the best of his ability, the best of his conscience, and the best of the traditions that were passed down, had continued this practice of sacrificing to the Lord and worshiping God and found favor in God's eyes enough to be considered a priest, a valid priest. And Abraham, the Bible says, paid tithes to Melchizedek. So he gave Melchizedek a tenth portion of everything that he had gained in his battle against the kings that captured Lot and his family. And, and so what Abraham did when he, when he paid tithes to Melchizedek, he validated Melchizedek's ministry. He validated the fact that Melchizedek was a legitimate priest. This was set in motion years later when God would tell the people of Israel, you are to pay a tenth of your proceeds to the priesthood so that they have a livelihood. They have a, a, uh, a, a way to, to provide for their families because they're working in the temple. They're working in the temple. The temple doesn't have a trade. You know, it's not like a, 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 a stonemason or a carpenter or some kind of tradesman that can make a living for his family. The priest earned his living by serving God and serving the people. So the people were mandated to pay a tithe to the priesthood. Every person in the nation of Israel was ordered to pay a tithe to the priesthood and to the temple in order to service the, the livelihood of the priests that lived and, and worked off of the ministry of, of, the, of the temple. So this was something that validated their ministry. It legitimized it, right? Because it was worthy. They were a workman worthy of their hire. You know, if someone does a service for you, they're worthy of you paying them 
a fair wage, uh, a fair wage that, that compensates their work and labor and materials, right? And like Paul said, the one who does not work should not eat. So there should be no freeloaders. We should, we should be working. It's good to have a job. Before God gave a man a wife, he gave him a job. Before he gave man a wife in the garden, he gave him a job. So it's good to work. It's godly to work. It's not godly to be a freeloader. It's godly to work. So anyway, that's, that's free. That's totally off topic. So we're coming back to the priesthoods of the Bible. So Melchizedek, Abraham validates Melchizedek's ministry by paying him a tithe. And, and then he, he uh, brings forth bread and wine to Abraham, and they have a little service, a worship service together, okay? Now, Melchizedek was a man. Now, the Bible says he was without father, mother, descendant, beginning days, or end of life. That does not mean that Melchizedek was an angel, some theophany of God, or some kind of magical individual that was blessed with eternal life. No, Melchizedek just did not have a lineage to speak of. He had no priestly lineage that the Bible records. And the Bible doesn't mention his father, his mother, his descendants, because he was kind of a standalone individual that served God in his capacity. Now, uh, David mentioned him in the Psalms. And when he mentioned Melchizedek, he tied the priesthood of Melchizedek to the Messiah. In Psalms 110, David mentions him, and then Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, which whenever it is, picked up that in Hebrews 5. And we'll, we'll cover this again here tonight, so I'm just going to mention it here. And he connected the priesthood of Christ to that of Melchizedek. And so we'll talk about how he does that. Okay, so that's why Melchizedek is mentioned. He's mentioned there because somehow he's tied to Jesus Christ. And we'll cover that in our lesson tonight. Uh, and, and so then God moves on to dealing with Abraham. And Abraham has a son by the name of Isaac. And Isaac has a son by the name of Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Israel has 12 sons. 12 sons. And uh, he actually had more than 12, but... Twelve were counted. Ephraim and Manasseh were twins, and they were counted as one nation. They were half-tribes, so they, they put them together and count them as one tribe. They were the sons of Joseph. So he has twelve. Joseph has twins. The twins are the ones that come under him, and blah, 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 blah. Two of the sons of, of Israel are named Judah and Levi. Okay? Judah was the, the tribe that produced kings for the nation of Israel. Remember when Israel wanted a king? They came to Samuel the prophet. They said, give us a king. We want to be like the other nations. And Samuel said, okay, I'm going to take someone from the tribe of Dan. And that was Saul. Well, Saul wasn't a good king. He was bad. So God said, okay, let's try a different tribe. Let's go with Judah. So he goes with Judah, and out of the tribe of Judah came a boy by the name of David. David became the king that pleased the Lord and was 
was close to God and a man after God's own heart. God promised David because he pleased him so much that he would be the father of the Messiah. The son of David would sit on the throne of David forever. That was Jesus. So Judah became the tribe that produced kings for the nation of Israel from that point forward. And so when you get to the first chapters of Matthew and Luke, you'll have a long list of names that you read through. And if you study those names, you'll find out that is the trace line from Abraham to David to Jesus, okay? And what the, what the genealogies are doing is they're trying to demonstrate Jesus is legitimately the king of Israel. By rights, he is the son of Judah who produced kings for Israel, okay? And then you read how Luke goes all the way back to Adam and traces from Adam to Jesus, following the line through the, the, the tribes of Judah through David, proving that Adam was the priest, okay, or that, that, that Jesus was the king. And so this is the tribe of Judah, okay, I'm mentioning that. There is another tribe called the tribe of Levi. Now there's a story that when Israel was released out of Egypt, they got to the base of Mount Sinai, God gave them the Ten Commandments, and while Moses is up in the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, the people descend into the worst kind of sin, and they begin to worship a golden idol, but the Levites did not. They reserved themselves. They stood off. They said, this is not right. Aaron and the priests, now Aaron was mixed up a little bit, but the rest of the Levites held back and did not engage in this debauchery of sin. And because of that, God said, you will now be my priests forever. Initially, if, if I read it right and if memory serves right, God wanted the whole nation to be able to be priests in the temple and serve the Lord. But because they had sinned so much and broken all Ten Commandments within 30 days of God giving them, but the Levites refrained and held themselves back. God said, I now choose the Levites to represent me as priests for the nation. Okay? So now the Levites join in as the priests. And only Levites could be priests from this point forward. So God established a priesthood that would be a connecting point for the people to God. The priests would offer sacrifice unto God. The priests would be educated and, and their whole lives. If you were born into the tribe of Levi, you were going to be a priest. Now, it, it was... You could diversify your interests within that. If you were musical, you could be part of the Kohathites, and you could be musicians in the house of God. If you were, you know, more skilled with your hands, then you could be with a different sect and, and, and be used. So, you know, there was places for you to be plugged in, but essentially if you were a Levite, you were destined to be a priest, and potentially if you were of the house of Aaron, you would become the high priest. Now, the high priest was someone special because the high priest had the highest rank of all priests, and there was only one high priest at a time. The high priest, which, like I said, the Catholic Church patterned their priesthood after the Jewish priesthood of Levi. So you have the Pope, who is the highest priest within the Catholic Church. Now, they have other hierarchies within their ranks, 
that does not reflect the priesthood of Levi. Because apart from the high priest, there was no other hierarchy. Every other priest was equal on the same footing in the Levites. There was different, different classes, as in the musicians, the handyman, and the, the, you know, the animal, the ones who took, partook of the animals and took care of the animals or whatever. There was all kinds of different jobs for priests to do, but they were all on the same playing field. There was no priest better than another the only priest that was better than the rest was the high priest because he was the leader, and he was the leader of all the priests. Priests were consecrated to the Lord. When you became a priest and you entered into your ministry, you had to be washed from the head to the toe. And they eventually developed mikvah baths, which became the, baptismal, the early baptismal tanks of the early church. And the priest would fully submerge himself in water. He would essentially be baptized as a priest. And the priests were then anointed with oil from the top of their head to the soles of their feet. Are you seeing the connection here? So there was a baptismal ceremony to become a priest and an anointing ceremony. You could not become priest without it. Okay? And the priests had to wear certain kinds of clothing. They couldn't just wear whatever they wanted to. They had to wear priestly garments. Okay? Only the high priest could enter into the sacredest of all places called the holiest of holies. This is where the mercy seat was, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And when they sacrificed the animal for the sins of the people, they would take the blood. The high priest would go into the holiest of holies and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And it would atone for the sins of the whole nation. Okay? This was the Levitical priesthood. Then we get over into the New Testament. We get past the Gospels into the epistles where Paul and the others, Peter, are beginning to write now about Jesus being our high priest. Now, remember, what tribe is Jesus from? Judah. Judah is the tribe of kings, right? So Jesus is legitimately the king of Israel, but by birth he is not the priests. He has no right to enter the temple. Jesus, despite being God in the flesh, could not enter into the sacred places of the priesthood. Why? Because he was from the tribe of Judah. He was not from the tribe of Levi. So how could Jesus offer up his own body as a sacrifice? Because there was no priest, there was no Levitical priest offering up Jesus as a sacrifice, right? That would have been crazy. They couldn't do human sacrifices, right? That wouldn't have been right. That would have been against the law to do a human sacrifice. So somehow, Jesus had to be his own priest, offering up himself as the lamb, and he also had to be the temple because you needed a temple, a priest, and a sacrifice to make a, an atonement. So Jesus had to not only be the temple of God, which means he was the embodiment of the Spirit of God. He had to be the sacrifice that went on the altar, and he had to be the priest to offer it, and the king to sanctify it or commission it. But he was all of those things. How could he claim a priesthood? He was not a Levite. How could he do this? Hebrews 7, let's read 
verses 14 through 22. I'm reading this in New Living because I find it a little bit easier to read the books like Hebrews and Romans. I, I like to flip back and forth. I'll go KJV. I'll read that first, and I'll go, whew, that's wordy. Let's skip over to New Living, and then I, I contrast and compare because I know there's no perfect translation. They all have pieces of the puzzle, and I fit them all together. Okay, so Hebrews 7, 14. What I mean is our Lord came from the tribe of Judah, and Moses never meant a priest coming from that tribe. We just talked about that. This is the challenge that has been made very clear since a different priest who is like Melchizedek appeared. Remember we talked about Melchizedek in the beginning? And he was the priest that came before Levi. Jesus became a priest. So how, the question is, how could Jesus claim his priestly rights? Jesus became a priest not by meeting the physical requirements of belonging to the tribe of Levi, but by the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. And Psalms pointed out when he prophesied, you are a priest forever and the order of Melchizedek. Yes, the old requirement about the priesthood was set aside because it was weak and useless. Now, it was, it was what it was at the time, but now it's weak and useless. Think of it this way. When you plant a plant, there is a period of time in the life of that plant that the stalk, the leaves, and the roots are essential to the vitality of that plant. But there comes a point in that life of the plant at the harvest in which the stalk, the leaves, and the roots are no longer necessary. They are weak and useless. They're either infested with bugs, they're prone to disease, they die out, and the fruit is now the product of concern. Jesus was the fruit that was produced by the tribe and the nation of Israel. And God was getting to a point when Jesus, when he came to the earth, manifested himself in flesh, in which the priesthood of Israel was weak and useless like the stalks and the leaves on the plant. Jesus was the fruit produced by the nation of Israel. God used the nation of Israel to a point, and then when they were finished, he transitioned into a new kingdom. No longer the kingdom of Israel, now this is the kingdom of God. Verse 19, for the law never made anything perfect, but now we have confidence in a better hope through which we draw near to God. Verse 20, this new system was established with a solemn oath. So the Levitical priesthood was established by the command of God, but the Melchizedek priesthood was established by a promise from God. Psalm 110, verse 4. This is a prophecy about the Messiah that was given by David in his lifetime. Hundreds of years before Jesus was ever on the scene, David penned these words. The Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. Quote, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus, because he was the rightful Messiah, could claim his place as the better and higher ranking priest than the Levitical priesthood. How was he the better priest? 
than the established priests that were robed and in the temple in a magnificent stone edifice covered in gold, beautiful. How was Jesus' priesthood? Jesus was a, a uh, you know, just a, a traveling preacher, a prophet going from town to town doing miracles, walking in, sa- in sandal leather, you know, the average individual. How was his priesthood better than the established priesthood of the Levitical priests? Jesus' priesthood was established before the Levites was. How? Because Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek, demonstrating Melchizedek was better than him, and he deserved a tithe of Abraham's livelihood. Levi was the great-great-grandson, great-great-great-grandson of Abraham. No grandson is better than their grandfather. Grandsons always show respect to their grandfathers. They usually never rise in rank in the family higher than the living relative. Whoever is the oldest ranking relative in that family, at least in, 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 in this, uh, this part of the world, is the chief of the family. Abraham was the superior to Levi. And Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek. And then God said, I'm promising that the Messiah will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. By the way, Melchizedek was the priest of Salem. Salem means peace. So he was the king of peace. Melchizedek means righteousness. So he was the king of righteousness and the king of peace. That sounds a lot like Jesus. Jesus is the king of righteousness, and he is also prophesied to be the prince of peace. Jesus is a better priest than that of Melchizedek. Jesus is our, the Bible says, our faithful high priest, Hebrews 2, verse 17. Christ is the apostle and high priest of our profession, Hebrews 3 and verse 1. Christ is the great high priest, the Bible says. He's not just the high priest, he's the great high priest. Christ is passed into the heavens and is sat down, denoting his finished work of offering his sacrifice on the cross, the sacrifice of himself. He is a better high priest than the priestly order of Levi because he is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Christ changed the law by a promise from God. God made a promise to Abraham. And that promise was that in his seed he would bless the whole world. God then took that promise and added on to it to David and said, I'm going to make sure that this Messiah is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He will supersede. He will rise in rank above and beyond the Levitical priesthood and will bring man closer to God in a permanent sense of the word. So, Jesus is the great high priest. He is the great high priest. He is the priest that 
not only is a priest, but he's also a king. He is the priest king, which is amazing. And you can see how that is better. That is better than the priesthood of Levi, because Levi could never be a king. But Jesus could be. So now we come to the fact that, okay, Jesus is the great high priest. The Bible calls him the great high priest. Why is Jesus the great high priest? Well, if you look at the Levitical priesthood, the high priest of the Levites would take the blood of the animal that was sacrificed for the sins of the people and go into the holy place that nobody else could go into, and he would present the blood on the altar or the mercy seat in the holy place. Well, the Bible tells us that the tabernacle of the Old Testament was a picture, a shadow of the heavenlies. In other words, it was a, it was a, uh, a carbon copy, if you will, of what heaven's tabernacle looked like. It was patterned after the tabernacle in heaven. So when Jesus rose from the dead, I love this part of the story because while Jesus uh, rose from the dead, he stopped long enough to talk to a woman by the name of Mary Magdalene. And she reached out to touch him and he said, wait, don't touch me yet. I have not yet ascended unto my father. Jesus, when he rose from the dead, was going to perform the priestly duty of going into the holiest of holies and sprinkling his blood on the mercy seat, making a permanent atonement for the sins of mankind. But he loved Mary enough to stop and let reassure her he was not dead, but he was indeed alive. But she couldn't touch him because he was right in the middle of doing his priestly duties. Now that's interesting because after Jesus speaks to Mary, apparently he ascends into heaven and he presents the blood and then he comes back down and starts talking to his disciples and he lets them touch him. Why was he letting them touch him now? Well, he had done his priestly duties. He, he had completed it. But he paused his priestly duties long enough to speak to someone he loved. Consider this. Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. Mary Magdalene was possessed with seven demonic spirits. Jesus delivered her, turned her life around. You think about it, the implications of the day, women were not highly respected. And prostitutes were even less respected. And anybody who had a demon was even lower on the list of respect. But Jesus transcended all cultural barriers stopped his priestly duty. He paused, he pushed pause on redeeming mankind to reassure a, a former prostitute and demon-possessed woman that he was alive. That's amazing. What a great God we serve. You see why he's a better priest? No high priest of the Levitical order. Right? Jesus tells stories about those priests where they saw the guy on the side of the road and they passed by on the other. Mm, dirty. 
They passed on the other side of the road. Jesus was a better priest. He was a better priest. And he had a better priesthood. Now, why talk about Jesus being our great high priest? Because there's something very special about the church, all believers, that the Bible refers to. If Jesus is the high priest, who are the regular priests? If you want to follow the pattern, Jesus is the high priest, but then there should be the regular priest. Because in the Levitical priesthood, there was the high priest, and then there was the average priest. The Bible says in the, the passage we read, 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are not like that, for you are a chosen people. That's good news. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. Peter wasn't talking to a certain group within the church. Peter was talking to the church. Everybody who is baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the Holy Ghost, and living for God, is a biblical priest. And has all the biblical authority of the average regular priest in Scripture. Turn to Acts chapter 2 and read about the first day of Pentecost. Read it for yourself when you get home. Was it the twelve only involved? in the baptisms and the praying people through to the gift of the Holy Ghost on that day? Nope. Not possible. You want to know why? The Bible says 3,000 souls were added to the church, and the implication is that it happened the same day. 3,000 people came into the church on the same day. 12 people, I've done the math, if it takes roughly five minutes to baptize somebody. And by the way, if you're baptizing more than five or six people, you are going to be very sore because you've got to put them in and pull them out in the water. That's baptism. Bap biblical baptism is full immersion in water. And that's, that's easily proven throughout the Scripture. So if you're going to baptize more than five people, your arms are going to be sore after a while. Sure. Sure, they could have done that, but still, like, eventually, you're doing the same repetitive motion for 3,000, 12 people baptizing 3,000 people. That would have taken many, many hours, more hours than are in a day. But, yes, you can do the math. If you take 120, which were, the Bible says were in the upper room, you can baptize three thousand people in a matter of four hours if you give five to seven minutes per individual now i'm more inclined to believe all the people that were baptized and filled with the holy ghost on the day of pentecost turned around and began to baptize other people what were they doing they were doing the ministry of the priesthood if you are filled with the holy ghost and baptized in jesus name in fact, there are no qualifications in Scripture to who can baptize who. 
the only thing you need to do is call on the name of Jesus to make a baptism legitimate. You can get baptized in your bathtub. You can baptize someone. I, I baptized a man in the prison, and he was baptized in a horse trough. That was used, and his baptism was legitimate. I read an article just the other day. This happened in a prison in the United States. The inmate was brought in, and he was one of those serious inmates that was baptized in chains. And he was baptized in chains and came out of the water. And the chains were in the bottom of the tub. And what he did is he prayed a prayer before he went to be baptized. He said, God, I'm doing this because I, I believe what these guys are saying, but I really would like that extra little bit of proof that if my sins are really washed away, the chains will be left in the bottom of the tub. And God answered his prayer. Each. No. Exactly. That's totally doable. Baptizing 25 people is doable, right? So anyway, back to the Bible calls every believer a priest. Every believer. If you're baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost, you are qualified by God to do ministry. You don't have to rise to some level within the church. To be a minister, you can be a minister upon conversion. You can turn around and begin to do the work of priests. And the Bible legitimizes your priesthood. Not because you're so righteous. It's never been about how righteous you are, how righteous I am. It's always been about Jesus has called me. Jesus has washed me. Jesus has covered me. I'm under his high priestly authority. And I can now do the works he did. And Jesus said, you will do greater works than the works I did. Not because I'm good. Not because I'm qualifiable. Because I'm not. But because he has qualified me. Yeah, I was. That's right. Yes, yes, yeah. When when baptism in Jesus' name was becoming, uh, back when it was coming being given back to the church in in 1912, 19, uh, 1912, I believe it was. Uh, it was actually a Canadian guy. Yes, a, one of the preachers was Canadian, and they both saw. They were at a, a camp meeting, and they saw baptism in Jesus name and they went down to the lake and baptized each other in Jesus name. So when 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 the Bible calls the church priests that doesn't mean that that everybody in the church is is the leader of the of the local assembly. There is still pastors, prophets, evangelists, teachers who who do the work of ministry and equip the saints. But this idea of Priests do all the ministry. Priests do all the praying. Priests do all the thing is very Levitical. And Jesus, well, through the, the writer of Hebrews, says, 
that priestly system is weak and useless. Why is it weak and useless? Because if one, if the ratio of one to 150 is doing all the work, the ministry work, you're going to have someone who cannot have a family, someone who cannot serve because they're too burdened with ministry. But if you have 150 people doing the work of ministry, you can reach exponential amounts of people in the kingdom of God. The Bible indicates that we are royal priesthood. So we, we pattern our priesthood not after the Levitical priesthood, but after the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And Jesus was patterned after Melchizedek, who was both priest and king. There is no hierarchy among believers. There is no believer that's better than another. There may be believers that are positionally in a position of responsibility and directional authority, but they're not better than. Jesus made it clear, if you're going to be great in the kingdom, you've got to be the least of all. You've got to serve and serve the least in the kingdom. Collectively, the church is a priesthood. While individually we are priests, therefore we have a solemn and individual responsibility to offer to God the sacrifices he has commanded. Romans 12 tells us that we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. The sacrifice we present to God is ourselves, our temple. Keep the temple clean. Don't put the temple in compromising situations. By the way, the temple is not this building. The temple is your body. God demands physical and moral purity in the temple. We're to glorify with God with our body and our spirit. Why? Our body is the temple. We are the priests. You say, Pastor, I, don't, I haven't really lived like a priest. You know, I've, I've lived like one way and the other. We all have. Again, it's not about your righteousness. Now, that being said, because you are a priest and you are the temple, God wants you to clean up. God wants you to, to turn around and, and, and repent and make things right and, and turn to God. He wants you to be separate from the world, like the priests of the Old Testament were separate from their world. They were separated from their own nation of people because they were called to do something better than the rest of the nation. You are called to do something for God. You are called. Everybody in the church is called. And there is sometimes a notion, the reason why I wanted to teach this lesson is because even within Pentecostal ranks, there is a notion that only the special people get to be used of God. When the Bible makes it clear, all believers are priests. Everybody. Everybody is called. I, I appreciate the services where they... they they, they get the young people all fired up and say, now, if you're called to be in the ministry, I want you to come down. I think that's good. But it can also communicate a, a, a something without saying it. It can communicate that only the called do ministry. And I would venture to say that just because you're not, you may not be called to be a missionary and you may not called to pastor, that doesn't mean you're not called. If you got the Holy Ghost, if you were baptized in Jesus' name, or if you've repented of your sins, you are called. You would not respond to the gospel if God had not called you. 
if you've repented of your sins, then God has a calling on your life. And everybody's called, and you've got to find out where God wants you to be involved in his priesthood. Everybody in the church is called. The Bible says we're to offer spiritual sacrifices, 1 Peter 2, verse 5. Those spiritual sacrifices, uh, according to Hebrews 13, 15, are the fruit of our lips, praising, singing, worshiping God. The sacrifice of thanksgiving is something we should be giving to God. And, and we are to offer the sacrifice of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Humility, Psalm 51, 15 through 19. We are to sacrifice a free will offering from our mouth. And it's also good for us to sacrifice our substance to God. Proverbs 3, verse 9. That we give God the first fruits of our, of our goods. We give God something of our producing. We, we, we make money. We, we ought to give to the kingdom of God, to the work of God, as a sacrifice to him, a continual sacrifice. That's the role and the jobs and the duties of a priest. And everybody's a priest. And your high priest is the one you go to in prayer. The high priest is the one you confess to. The high priest is the one that you pray to. You don't need to go to a man to confess your sin. You go to Jesus to confess your sin. John, chapter 3, 1 John, I'm sorry, talks about how if you confess your sins, and the implication there is to Jesus, he... Jesus is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You don't need to go to pastor to confess your sins. You need to go to Jesus. Because Jesus is your high priest. He's the one who died for you. You pray to him. You talk to him. You let him direct you. And you allow him to empower you to do the work of the priest in the world. Amen. Why don't we stand and we'll pray and close tonight. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. We worship you. We thank you for what you've done. Thank you for the revelation of your word. Thank you for the calling you've placed on our lives. Help us, Lord. Help us to, to, to respond to the call of God and to, to do what you've called us to do and to, to be the priest that you've called us to be, Lord Jesus, to minister and to, to do the, the things that you've beckoned us to do, Lord. Touch our lives and help us to obey your voice, to do what pleases you, Father. In the name of Jesus, we give you glory and praise for it today. In Jesus' name, amen.